It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Warning for listeners, the following episode contains graphic content. A shroud of frost began forming around the body of a young woman who lay face down in a snowy Virginia forest. She had been raped, strangled, and left to die. Barely alive, she crawled through the woods, dragging herself to a nearby road. A couple driving through Prince William Forest Park noticed the woman, bloodied and shivering, and pulled over to help. As paramedics treated her wounds, the woman recounted the horrific details of what had happened the night before. I'm Emily Campagno, and this is the Fox True Crime Podcast. The woman and her roommate were walking home when they were accosted at gunpoint by a man just outside their house. The young women were forced into their home and bound. Her roommate managed to call 911, but the man dragged the young woman into his silver Dodge Durango and drove off. After repeatedly raping her, he began to choke her with her own scarf, discarding her body in the woods once he believed she was dead. February 27, 2010, the same day of the attack, 22-year-old George Avila Torres was arrested for his crimes. But law enforcement would soon realize that the details revealed were only the tip of the iceberg. George grew up in Zion, Illinois, in a working-class neighborhood. He didn't have the best time at school. He regularly skipped class and was even expelled his senior year for possession of marijuana. Immediately after graduating from a different school, he went on to join the Marine Corps and was stationed at Joint Base Meyer-Henderson in Arlington, Virginia. Those that knew him described George as awkward and a bit of an outcast, but otherwise generally likable. However, nobody knew the dark, murderous secrets that he held within himself. Today, I'm joined by the lead prosecutor of the federal case, Jonathan Fahey. Jonathan is a former federal and state prosecutor. During his work at the United States Attorney's Office in the Eastern District of Virginia, he served as a special assistant U.S. attorney leading various grand jury investigations. Aside from his career as a prosecutor, Jonathan also served as deputy assistant secretary at the Department of Homeland Security and later the acting director for U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. He now works with Brown Rudnick as counsel in the firm's litigation and arbitration practice group. For his work on the Torres case, Jonathan was awarded the Attorney General's John Marshall Award for trial of litigation. He joins me today to provide the full story behind George Avila Torres' crimes. Jonathan Fahey, thank you so much for joining me today. Former federal and state prosecutor, you prosecuted the initial federal case against George Avila Torres. Jonathan, joining me today, welcome. Tell us about when you first got this case assigned to you as a federal prosecutor. 
I got a call, uh, you know, Monday, July 13th, 2009, because a young woman named Amanda Snell, an enlisted sailor living at Henderson Hall, Fort Myer, was found dead in her barracks in a wall locker. She was curled up in a ball and there was multiple suspicious circumstances surrounding her death. I got a call from the marshals to help them get a tracking device on her phone, which had gone missing. So they they enlisted our help and we opened a case at the United States Attorney's Office to investigate her death and whatever surrounding crimes might be associated with it. So why would, if a military base experienced a potential homicide, why would they be reaching out to a federal office rather than handling it within the military for that? Well, we we had both we had jurisdiction over it as well as the military was. And, you know, we have certain investigative tools you can use as a federal prosecutor and among them things like uh, getting warrants to track phones. And we had more experience doing that type of thing. So that's that's why they they reached out. The military base reached out to the marshals. The marshals reached out to me. And that that's what started our, our case. And we opened opened up an investigation at the U.S. attorney's office. Uh, at, at that time. And then what did you learn as you began investigating George Avila Torres? Well, th- initially, there wasn't any evidence as to who killed the victim that was Amanda Snell, if she was killed and how she died, or there wasn't much evidence. She was found, Ama- Amanda Snell was found in her wall locker, which is like a basically like a closet within her barracks room. And she was found at the bottom of her wall locker, curled up in a ball with a pillowcase over her head. Um, the, the reason she was found was because she didn't show up for work. She had a job at the Pentagon, which was nearby, and she was supposed to show up uh, early in the morning on, on Monday morning. After not showing up for work, her supervisors got concerned because she was a very reliable employee, and they eventually got to her room, searched her room, opened up a wall locker, opened up her wall locker and found her dead in the bottom. Uh, Interestingly, before that, Amanda Snell, the last time she had been seen alive was that previous Friday evening, which was July 11th of 2009. She didn't, on the Saturday morning, she didn't show up to meet some friends for brunch. And the following day, she was supposed to go to church and had a date after church and didn't show up for, for that either. But it wasn't until the morning of July 13th, which was a Monday, that people realized something was wrong when she didn't show up for work. And, and they came, they found her in her room and they found other evidence suggestive of crime, but there were other things that were, that were unknown and unanswerable at the time. Describe what those things were. The things that they found, what they found her, obviously, if somebody's curled, a young person curled up in a ball with a pillowcase over her head, obviously, that's, you know, evidence of foul play or, or certainly highly indicative of that. There were also items missing from her room, such as her laptop, her cell phone, and an iPod, which probably no one has anymore, but a music device made by Apple. And... Um, there were things that were, that didn't make much sense because her bed was was neatly made. Her room wasn't in disarray, so there wasn't signs of like of a struggle or things like of a robbery or things like that. Uh, there was also an initial autopsy done, and the medical examiner was unable to find either the cause or manner of death. And you know, when you we talk about cause or manner of death, you think cause of death could be something like a heart attack or 
a gunshot wound and the manner of death might be something like homicide, accident, things like that. So the, the medical examiner didn't see any obvious signs of injury on her body. They also didn't have, see signs of a sexual assault, which is something you would certainly look for if it's a young female victim. So, so it was one of these things that there were certainly a lot of indicators of foul play, but certainly a lot of things that, that just didn't make sense initially as to, to what happened, how it happened, who did it, or, or if anyone did it. So the U.S. Marshals send your way uh, the request to investigate and court order the cell phone. And so what do you start uncovering as you are investigating this? Well, unfortunately, the cell phone, which, which you would think you know, you find the phone, you find a person, but unfortunately the cell phone was turned off. So there really wasn't any evidence with that cell phone linking it to anyone else. It was just, uh, there was no way to locate it. Uh, so the evidence that, that was initially, or the evidence that was initially collected in the investigation that ensued, you know, there, there was, you know, obviously documentation of the room. Uh, there was a series of footprints, uh, impressions around her wall locker that molds of those were made. Uh, there, again, there was an autopsy done in which they were unable to find a cause and manner of death. NCIS uh, investigated at the base and they did a series of interviews, you know, canvassing interviews of people on the base to see if anyone knew anything. They asked them a series of questions. They also uh, got, got DNA samples from people in the event DNA evidence or anything else was found. But the, it really didn't lead to anything significant or concrete or didn't really advance after, you know, the first, you know, I would say six weeks or a couple months. Everything they could think of to do uh, was done and it didn't lead them to any more clarity as to how Miss Snell died or who, if anyone, was responsible. We're going to take a quick break. More from our guest after this. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Tell us about the pace of processing of the evidence, because it it's my understanding that at the time they did collect a lot, of, a lot of evidence, but it wasn't processed until years later, in part due to the questions surrounding whether, in fact, right. it was a homicide or not. Can right. you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, initially, the, the, you know, evidence was collected. Virtually everything from her room was collected. Everything was photographed. Everything they could think of to do, dusting for fingerprints, mm -hmm. things of that nature. So those were that was all done very quickly. There wasn't any analysis of certain items that were collected for DNA or, or things like that at the initial point because there wasn't evidence that there was that someone else's DNA would be there. And certainly you, you can't test every single thing for DNA or, or they weren't able to at the time. So initially there was a lot of processing of evidence, a lot of documentation, uh, but without other leads, certain, certain things were not processed and analyzed immediately. And, and it wasn't like you said, until a couple of years later when things were done. Looking back, it's difficult to sort of stomach the fact that, as we know now, what was a brutal homicide could be seen as anything but. So looking back, do you feel there was a level of 
of uh, questions as to competency of the scene processing of the autopsy, the pathologist in, in seeing her body or, or was there truly competing realms of evidence that might deem that her death was just an accident? She was found with a pillowcase on her head, curled up in a quote, unnatural position in the wall locker. So can you explain how that could be construed as anything but homicide? Yeah, exactly. That, that, that's a good point. You know, the, the objectively, the first instinct is that this is a homicide. But then when a few layers were taken back, things didn't didn't support it as far as, you know, there weren't obvious signs of trauma to her body and things of that nature. And I think in hindsight, looking back, it's easy to say oh, what was missed or what wasn't done. But certainly, you know, you have somebody, a young person, you know, young young people are not going to typically go crawl into a closet, put a pillowcase over their head and die. Obviously, that's, that's something that is quite unusual. It was just the other things you typically find to support it were not coming in. Usually there's a cause and manner of death. And it's pretty rare in a homicide case to have neither uh, from the pathologist. So that certainly made things more difficult when you have a pathologist that's not able to give an opinion that this is even a homicide. It certainly makes things more difficult. But the initial, so there were certainly competing thoughts as to maybe there was a, maybe this was some sort of accidental death, maybe there was something unusual, but certainly objectively, this does certainly look and does look like a homicide. But, you know, in terms of moving forward with the case, it, it didn't really change a whole lot because there wasn't much to be done. There's still a, you know, a fairly thorough investigation that just wasn't leading anywhere. You know, people, there wasn't signs of, you know, a, a romantic relationship going wrong or, or things like that that you would typically see in a homicide. It's quite rare in homicide cases, as you know, for, for, for a victim to be chosen totally at random. So you're looking at, you know, the typical things you're looking at, family members, you're looking at, you know, a former boyfriend, girlfriend, that type of thing. And that just wasn't present there. So the, the investigation really, you know, hit a wall for lack of a, a, a better term, uh, initially after probably the first few months of it. And it's my understanding as well that in part confusing and challenging the investigations as, again, as we know now, it was a homicide, but at the time, um, is that she was subject to and suffered from migraines during which she would seek a dark place, that she would put uh, cloths over her her head. And so her upon learning this, this entity, as they were investigating it, thought, well, perhaps it was just a tragic accident. She was suffered from migraines and she went into the closet, put a pillowcase over her head. That seems perhaps odd under other circumstances, but all right, maybe that was her method of coping with these regular migraines that she was reported to, to suffer regularly. Um, and the little bruises that were under her skin that are oftentimes associated with suffocation you know, again, construed by the board in a favorable light. Well, perhaps that was, again, the result of this tragic accident. So, Jonathan, moving forward, tell us what happened next. So this is in all of this. Uh, Miss Snell was was found dead and it was July 13th, 2009. The next part of the case or sequentially, the next part of the case that they were uh, jumping ahead to February of 2010 in Arlington, Virginia, which is the same county which Miss Snell was found, which is a, you know, a suburb of, of Washington D.C., a fairly affluent community or, or county, uh, there was uh, a series, or there were two attacks on women. One on one woman at the beginning of February, 
and one on two women at the end of February. And the one at the beginning of February, which occurred around February 2nd or 3rd of 2010, occurred after this the snowstorm in Washington, D.C., which we refer to here as Snowmageddon because, you know, every big snowstorm, they have a name for them. And it, the, the thing that made this interesting with respect to that is the first victim was a, a nurse who worked in a hospital. And she, because she was in the emergency room, she was working the overnight shift in the emergency room. Oddly, because of all the snow, everything was shut down. So the emergency room was actually quite slow that night. So she was uh, given, I guess, let go early or let allowed to leave early. But early for her meant like, you know, in the middle of the night, 12, 1 o'clock in the morning. Uh, she lived in Washington, D.C., but she wasn't able to get to her, her house because the snow was so deep. So she ended up taking the metro to Arlington, Virginia, and she was going to go to her boyfriend's house. As she was going, uh, she gets off the metro and there were people out sort of goofing around, playing in the snow right around the metro. But at some point, she, as she's walking towards this house, which is in a, I guess, more suburban area than, than the metro, but not too far away, she realizes she's all alone. And then as she's walking again towards her, her boyfriend's house, a person approaches her and she's walking on like a narrow path that people had just made through walking in the snow, not like a, a sidewalk because the snow had been so deep. So it didn't have room for two people. So she's walking towards this male or young man who, you know, the snow was coming down really, really still very heavily and he didn't have any snow. She knows he didn't have any snow on him, which seemed a little bit odd. And as he walks towards her, he doesn't yield to her. She basically had to get out of his way, um, which made her quite uncomfortable. But as she kept walking towards the boyfriend's house, she noticed she felt something was wrong. And next thing you know, the person that had just walked by her was behind her and had pulled a gun out and also subsequently pulled a knife out and ordered her to get into his car, and he, which was a, a Dodge Durango SUV. And at, at this point, she's afraid that he's going to you know, rape her, that he's going to kill her. So she's doing everything she can to not get in that car, including trying to negotiate with him and things like that. And she eventually, she was probably about, she's sort of walking and negotiating at the same time. And she's probably, you know, if memory serves me right, probably about 100 yards from her boyfriend's home. So she's thinking if this guy is just trying to rob her or something, uh, may, maybe her move is to just give him her purse and try to get away. And what she did was throw her purse down and sprinted to her boyfriend's house. And her boyfriend and his roommates were still awake, tells them what happened. And they, they come running out of the house and the person is gone. The car is gone and the purse is still there. So that was in February 2nd or 3rd, I think 2nd going into the morning of the 3rd of 2010. So that happens and you know there's not a whole not a whole lot happens to help catch that perpetrator at the time, but around that same time there were two Arlington County police officers on separate occasions that noticed an individual uh, driving in Arlington County in the snow. Again, this is like two feet of snow and in the DC area, this truly shuts down everything. And they were, they, but this car was out in the snow and the person in it just seemed to be acting unusual. They, they, 
his one of them described uh, the person's head was on a swivel when he just seemed to be looking for people or looking for something. And it was so unusual. And he wasn't doing anything illegal. There was nothing wrong with driving in the snow, nothing wrong with looking around or anything like that. But but it was suspicious enough that they ran his tags. And, and when you run somebody's tags, it comes back to who the car is registered to. And maybe that person has warrants or other things that that might give them further reason to, to further investigate or maybe even stop him. But they write, the tags were run and nothing came back. But this becomes significant later because if you jump ahead to February 27th or so of 2010, there were two young women that lived in the Arlington area and they're in their, their early 20s and they had gone out to some bars in a part of Washington, D.C. And they came back from the bars, I want to say two, three o'clock in the morning. And they initially went to IHOP to get something to eat. And then after they left IHOP, they walked home, which was probably, you know, I would say about a half a mile from the IHOP. And and this this area where they're in, this the this particular part of Arlington, it's, it's extremely safe. It's an area where you can feel comfortable, and particularly at that time, feel comfortable, um, you know, walking anywhere, any time of night, and you're not, you, it's not the place you feel like you'd be victimized of a crime. They get about, I don't know, maybe five or six houses down from their house. They shared in a, 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 a single family home with each other, and they also had a third roommate who was home. As they're walking back or walking towards their house, at some point, somebody's behind them. And this person behind them pulls a gun on them, and orders them into their home. They they comply with him because it because he has a gun. He then ties them up with things like a a vacuum cord, uh, an iron cord, and starts to sort of, and and then puts them in one of the bedrooms. That both of them are scared for their life. They understandably and had no idea what was going to happen. They also knew they had a roommate that was in the house who was sleeping, and they were they didn't want her something bad to happen to her too, even if something, even if something horrible is going to happen to happen to them. So they didn't want this person knowing their roommate was there. They also didn't want to make any noise to alert the roommate because they didn't want to endanger her. The perpetrator at this point was an unknown person. He ties them up. He begins sort of ransack, you know, rummaging through the house, left them in one of the bedrooms. At one point, one of the young women was able to get uh, her hands free enough to, uh, Call 911 on her cell phone when the perpetrator was outside of the room. At this point, at some point, he came in when they were doing this. He took the cell phone, threw it against the wall, smashed it against the wall, and then takes one of the two young women at gunpoint, hands tied behind her back, takes her out to his car, which was a Dodge Durango. And he proceeds to, over the course of the, I guess, the early morning, proceeds to rape her and sodomize her and eventually took her down to another county that's essentially two counties away, Prince William County, took her out into the, uh, the wooded area off, off the road, strangled her with her own scarf and left her for what we believe thinking she was dead in in the woods. She managed to 
come to after he leaves and actually crawled her way to the side of the road and a passerby sees her and is concerned that he thinks it's like a wounded animal or something on the side of the road but he stops finds it's this this young woman who's been brutally attacked and then takes her uh takes her to the hospital where she's able able to get help what's so horrifying and remarkable about that story in part um is how brave and strong she is to survive that um and how much aplomb those girls demonstrated during the attack to survive and to protect their roommates so a few questions about that number one did the perp arrive with the vacuum and iron cords or were those things that he obtained from their house those were items from their house and it was my understanding that he used painter's tape at one point to um, tape their mouths shut. Is that accurate? Yes, yes that's right. He, he uh, Yeah, and those items become really important later on in the case. That, that's right. And while the one young woman was taken by him and, and taken for away for those hours, during that time, the survivor and the roommate, they had had authorities been called to their house then you know, ultimately they, they were then, was there a ground search and a search being underway for this perp who had kidnapped then the other roommate? Yeah. The time? And that, that's, that sort of brings us back to the, what for, to earlier there's, you know, the, the roommates were able to call 911. The police put out the, an APB to, to find this person knowing we have a kidnapping taking place. They knew the car, you know, the, the they had a description of the car, Dodge Durango. And what makes this notable, which is really some fantastic police work that was done in Arlington County, was when they heard this APB, these officers that had previously seen the suspicious activity or what they believe was suspicious earlier, again, at the very beginning of February, you know, they're thinking this sounds like the person that we saw earlier this month. So what they were able to do was uh, go back to the calls they called in to run license plates and go back to the ones they they called in at the beginning of February and find out where the where that Dodge Durango was registered and who the registered owner of that was, which which really broke the case open because uh, they were able to identify that the owner of the car was George Torres and he lived at Fort Myer. It's called Henderson Hall, Fort Myer, but the base where Amanda Snell uh, had been found dead. And they were able to go to the base, find the car, and looking into the car windows, they saw evidence of the crime of, of, the, of the victim. They saw cords, they saw her identification, other things, and the cords in particular, they were able to see just looking into the window of the car. Uh, they subsequently searched, you know, found Mr. George Torres, uh, arrested him, searched his room, and found found other evidence of of this crime and other sort of criminal intent. And final question about that actual uh, horrific event for those girls: They were five homes away, five five doors away from their home when George stopped them and then had them take him into their home. So, did he know where they lived, and therefore had he been stalking them prior, or? Did he presume they lived nearby within walking distance as he 
encounter them walking and therefore gamble that they were just five homes down? Yeah, that that's a that's a great question. And I don't know that there was any, any evidence that he knew where they live beforehand, but there really isn't isn't clear when he started following them or anything else. So it might it may have been simply just knowing they're close to home because where they're where they're walking. But but that's a very good question. I, I don't think they ever un- uncovered the answer to that. Stay with us. More of the Fox True Crime podcast after this. Another thing that struck me, you know, the callousness with which obviously this perp could do anything like this. But during the attempted murder, when this young woman was being strangled and she said, what are you doing? And he said, what do you think I'm doing? And then proceeded to strangle her until she became unconscious or appeared lifeless, which is when he fled. And thank God she survived. So clearly there's a very, um, an absolute lack of emotion on behalf of this perp as he's going through all of these heinous, violent acts. So now we're back to the police officers where by virtue of their diligence, their observation, their follow through and their memory, the one officer that remembers, um, you know, again, as you're, as you're tracing the events, this, it's really remarkable. Um, and it really just shows what heroes these officers are in uniform and out every day. They notice uh, the slightest suspicious behavior. They run a plate that preserves the record of such And then they're able to recall that when reports of this silver Dodge Durango as this woman was kidnapped and another and they were held hostage and kidnapped and attacked. And then they were able to trace it back to the base just three miles away from where those two young girls live and see in plain sight. So warrant not needed to see in plain sight evidence of the tools he used in the crime in his backseat, including the wallet of the young woman. Right. It, it really is a tribute to the, you know, the great work of law enforcement. And your point is they're heroes every day. And and what was what's really striking about it is like, you know, very good law enforcement officers, they see things that are suspicious that you and I might not notice as suspicious or other people might not notice. And it really, you know, with in this day when law enforcement is constantly attacked, you know, if it, if it wasn't for these officers not only being alert at the beginning, but also recalling and, and being conscientious enough, you know, who knows how how much more uh, this perpetrator would have gotten away with if, if it weren't for them. No doubt. So due to this, they then search his barracks. They have the identity of the Durango owner, which is this George Avila Torres. They search his barracks. What do they find? And then what happens? Yeah, so they search, they search his barracks room and they they found the handgun, but they also found they searched his computer and found some uh, quite disturbing things that he had been uh, searching on the internet uh, relating to strangulation, re- relating to s- sex crimes. He even looked up the a recipe for how to make chloroform, which is, you know is known as something that could in- incapacitate somebody. So you know they they had all of this evidence from the car to his room, and then they you know also had DNA evidence, and they found her DNA on him and his DNA on her, ultimately, after after it went back from the, came back from the laboratory. And they also found in his searches um, and his enjoyment of pornography, uh, special emphasis on sexual assaults and on subjugation of women and the like. So they sort of revealed a particular um, form of sadism and 
what he found gratifying sexually was indeed extremely violent and involved brutal and violent assaults. Okay, so the DNA was collected, like you said. Um, and so tell us then what happens. So he's then charged in Arlington County, Virginia, with multiple offenses relating to the attacks of both the woman at the beginning of February and the two women at the end of February, including, you know, abduction, sexual crimes, firearm crimes. And at this point, they had what I don't want to say a slam dunk case because nothing ever is, but they certainly had overwhelming evidence of his guilt when you have her DNA on his, his on hers, all the other evidence of the crime. It's 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 really a, you know as strong as you can get. So he was being held in jail um, in Arlington County pending trial. While I have to in- say too, I yeah. have to interject. What is especially remarkable about this case is the fact that in Virginia, that his DNA was collected before conviction, which right. is at the time was especially novel, and in this country is novel for many states. Right. And so here, generally speaking. DNA is collected upon conviction. It's not collected upon arrest with obviously certain exceptional situations. So they collect his DNA upon arrest, upon being charged, I should say. Yes. And that led to breaking wide open other cases. Yeah. So they, so they, they take his DNA and with the arrest on the felony. And, and like, you, like you said, this was not something that's commonly done or wasn't that commonly done. It's certainly after a conviction it was, but this was upon arrest. And initially, so then they would put it in the, um, his DNA is put in what, what's it's called the CODIS database, which is basically a database which has the DNA of both offenders and also victims, and often cases can match, you know, victims to offenders. Initially, so his DNA is put in the CODIS database. So this led to, eventually led to something that occurred several years earlier in a a city called Zion, Illinois. And so this DNA, entering this DNA into CODIS, it got a hit into a horrible double homicide that had occurred in Illinois years prior. Yeah, if I could talk a little bit about that homicide, there was a there's a town called Zion, Illinois. It's in northern Illinois, just south of the Wisconsin border along the lake and has about 30,000 people. In May of 2005, Mother's Day, incidentally, of 2005, there were two little girls that lived in that town. One was named Laura Hobbs. She was eight years old. The other was uh, Crystal Tobias, who was nine. They were best friends and they lived about a few doors down from each other and played together virtually every day. One of the places they liked to play was a park that was you know, short, right near their house called Beulah Park. And it was a park that had playgrounds, it had creek, it had woods and uh, trails. And it was, a, it was a park where people were comfortable letting their kids play without supervision and sort of a very sort of a wholesome place to grow up and, and place to play. Um, in Again, on Mother's Day of 2005, in that part of Illinois, it, it really doesn't get warm until, you know, May some years. And this was no, sort of known as like, I don't know, the first day, but really one of the first nice days of that year. Mm. Everybody was outside that day. People were playing in the park. People are all outside because, it, you know, after a long winter, you know, the first day, everyone's out there. They, they were uh, riding a bike in the park. 
And let's say they were riding a bike. It was one of these, it was a bike, but it had like pegs on the back wheel. So one of them was pedaling the bike. The other one was, was standing on the, the peg. So they're riding, you know, collectively riding a bike together. And I say that because it was, um, people noticed it thinking it was cute that these little girls were riding a bike and people, it was something that was memorable for people that, that saw them that day. They were supposed to be home that evening for dinner around seven o'clock. And initially when, you know, Laura Hobbs doesn't come home, her parents get, you know, concerned, but, you know, kids can be late, but eventually, you know, soon the concern became something's wrong. They called Crystal's family and Crystal didn't come home either. So soon it goes from, you know, a little concerned to absolute panic. 911's called. The whole community is out searching for these girls. There are helicopters from adjoining jurisdictions. Everyone is searching for these girls, searching the park, searching everywhere, calling everyone, calling the schools, and no one, no one could find them. They were just, they were missing. They were gone. Um, the next morning, Laura Hobbs's father named Jerry Hobbs and her grandfather went out looking for them again in the early morning hours. Uh, they're walking through the park. Again, it's very wooded. The park isn't small, so, you know, it's not easy to, to cover the whole park. They were out there walking through the trails looking for them, and they go off the beaten path. And at some point, uh, one of them sees the bike in the foreground, and then a little bit further, they found both girls. Um, they were both dead, and they had been stabbed to death. Um, Laura Hobbs had been stabbed about 30 times, including precise stab wounds in both eyes. Uh, Crystal had been stabbed about a dozen or so times, and they were both dead, lying in a field. Mm. Just unbelievable to imagine the father and the grandfather of a little girl um, to be the ones that find them not only dead, but so brutally murdered. That community was absolutely devastated. Um, and so was that family by that. So yeah. after that. Yeah, so um, it, 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 it's hard to believe, but it, it gets even worse after that because Jerry Hobbs, Laura Hobbs's father, who found the bodies, um, he had a criminal record, including some some things involving crimes of violence. Police immediately focused on him as a potential suspect, and as as you know, in, in you know murder cases and things that the the perpetrator is often either related, knows the victim, things like that. So they immediately focused in on him as a suspect because he's a family member and he found the body. Both things that led. Uh, to them being suspicious. Before they, we go any further, yeah. part of the questions that I had that many people have about this, though, is um, number one, there was semen found um, yeah. on the bodies. And also uh, that being that it was Mother's Day, the family members were with each other. So given that there was an alibi where family was together and also the sexual nature of this, which leads to such an aberrant um, just shocking the conscience, uh, you know, the concept. Wouldn't in this case the scope broaden? 
wouldn't in this case the scope broaden to not the father, given that he was with the family because it was Mother's Day and also, again, the sexual nature and they were biologically related. Uh, can you speak to us about that and why the authorities still maintained that he was at least a subject? Well, initially, when the, the bodies were found, they weren't able, you know, the, the DNA testing and things like that wasn't done immediately because it's, you know, they're, you know the things are, that are done, autopsies are done, then parts of the body are swabbed for DNA, then it's sent off to a laboratory, and then it takes some time to come back. So there's this period of time where, where things that were known later, you know, weren't, you know, so pe- they didn't know that that was the case when they focused on Jerry Hobbs. They didn't know what other evidence had already been found. They didn't know what, what it meant yet. So they focused on Jerry Hobbs mainly because of those factors. And he was interrogated for, I want to say about, you know, length of, you know, over 20 hours. And at the end of the interrogation, uh, he confessed to killing both Laura Hobbs and Crystal Tobias. And And Jonathan, we have that recording that we'll play right now and get your thoughts on the other side. Warning for listeners, the following content is graphic. Private to put on there? Okay. And would you like to read the statement electronically for us while being recorded? Yeah. Okay, can you read that out loud and please uh, be clear and just start from right here? On May 8, 2005, Sunday about 3 p.m., I got home with my wife Sheila and her four kids from flying kites at the lake. My daughter asked if she could go out and play with her friends. Sheila said it was okay even though she was still um, still grounded after stealing Sheila's $40. I didn't agree with the letting her go, but I didn't say anything at the time. At about 4.30 p.m., I decided to check on Laura and bring her home. I walked by myself from my house to the park and to the trail. Where my son Jerry said Laura hangs out. I was walking on a dirt trail and I ran into Laura and her friends Crystal on the trail. I told Laura that she had to come home and she argued with me and I grabbed her by the arm. She tried pulling away and was telling me to let her go. Crystal also told me to let Laura go. Crystal pulled out a small knife from her pocket and again told me to let Laura go. Laura was biting me and I punched her in the face and she dropped the ground. Crystal came toward me and I took the knife from her and I punched her in the face and she went down. And then went in a rage and stabbed Crystal in the chest and I was just up She stopped moving and I went over to Laura she was moving around and fighting. I punched her in the face again and stabbed her in the back neck and I also stabbed her in the face. My God. Jerry, why don't you take a second and, and, and just take a breath? Okay. It all happened so fast. But she was moving around. I think I stabbed Crystal six times in the lower pit. When I stopped moving, I pulled Crystal lower. About three minutes away from the trail, and I grabbed her hand. She was next to mine, so I banged on the trail. And I was more than a kid. Towards the park area, this was bright. The knife was a pointy brown wood handle. 
trying to die. And I'm 46 inches long, and I walked back home. I washed up my hands in the bathroom seat. I was wearing all the clothes I have on now. So Monday morning, I took art where the girls' bodies were, and they were just how I left them, except I was, I was swallowed up. I'm sorry, what? Things just got out of hand my life. I was just trying to be a father and take control of my children. I wanted to cooperate to help protect this man for me and drink too well. Jonathan, that is appalling to listen to, um, not only for the imagery of violence against children that it portrays, but also that it wasn't true. It begs the question how a father could describe in such alarming detail, inconsistent with the injuries and autopsy. They did not have beatings. They were stabbed horribly multiple times. They did, they did not sustain the kind of facial injuries as the repeated punching would have left on them that he describes. And also the the level of emotion that he's clearly has, it's it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. How could someone have confessed like this? How could a father have confessed in this way to two homicides and it wasn't true? You know, I don't really know like how uh, you you hear things about false confessions and you know it you know some people I think don't believe that they happen but this was after you know he he would say this was this was coerced and other stuff and and the the prior part of the interview was not videotaped so there's no there's no video of what led up during those 20 hours to the ultimate confession and I think your point is great it, it, that the evidence didn't line up. I mean, some of the evidence they didn't, just in fairness, didn't know at the time because the autopsy hadn't been done when they're interviewing him and he's making the confession. So, so the discrepancies were not immediately apparent. But, but sort of what you know, and you, you you've done this in doing criminal cases a lot of times, and this would be the the justification. A lot of times, criminal defendants will make admissions to what they did, make confessions but they still put themselves in the best possible light within the circumstance. So, you know, that that could be an explanation for the discrepancies. But if you really look at that story, it doesn't make any sense. It's absolutely preposterous. He's going to get his eight-year-old daughter to bring her back from the park because she had some disciplinary problem. And then he's attacked by the nine-year-old and fights them off and ends up, you know, killing them both in the park. It makes absolutely no sense in hindsight or even really at the time, it's like this, you know, you're not, he, he's a grown man getting attacked by a nine-year-old who happened to have a knife and she's the aggressor. And then, like you said, when you look at the the wounds or, or the injuries after the fact, you know, Laura Hobbs in particular had two precise stab wounds in each eye. That's, that's not what he described in, in that confession at all. You know, what he's describing as fighting with them and they both die, you wouldn't have two precise stab wounds, you wouldn't have any of the other stuff. And, and the whole thing, frankly, is preposterous. But the, the explanation would be he's confessing and doesn't want to give the, the full account of why and what he was doing. So so arguably minimized within those that context. Mm. So on the basis in part of his, uh, some of the charges were violent criminal history and his convictions, this confession um, then he spent the better part of five years then 
in jail. And for the record, which I believe you said this, but autopsies did determine the, the girls died of stab wounds. They died of multiple stab wounds each. Um, so he's in jail and then these cases converge. Yeah, he's in now. jail. And just as you were, you were getting to, um, after, you know, when the, the analysis was done from the, from the Illinois lab as well as a private lab, they had unknown DNA, a partial profile on Laura, which is important, on Laura Hobbs's right hand. They also found they were, there was a private lab hired by the defense in the case that was able to develop a Y profile, meaning isolating just for male DNA on certain areas of clothing of Laura Hobbs, like on her skirt and other things. So they had this partial regular DNA profile, also a, a separate Y profile developed by the defense. So they have Jerry Hobbs sitting in jail for, for five years, pending trial. There's a series of motions with these uh, pieces of evidence out there. And why this is important, because he, uh, going back to Arlington County, George Torres, again, is charged at the end of uh, February 20, uh, 2010. The partial profiles were not kept in the CODIS database. They had to be manually submitted, or I don't know if manually is the right word, but individually submitted to have them analyzed. So in June of 2010, the DNA examiner uh, from Illinois had always bothered her that there's this unknown DNA on the right hand of Laura Hobbs, and that's and they knew at that point it was not Jerry Hobbs's DNA. They had already excluded him. So she, on I don't want to say on a lark, but just this was continuing to bother her, decided to submit the partial profile to CODIS in June of 2010. And at that point, or shortly thereafter, they had a match from the DNA on Laura Hobbs's hand to George Torres, who had been charged with these attacks in Arlington, Virginia. Mm. And for listeners, the connection of George to this small town is that that is where he had grown up. And he was friends with the older brother of the girls, of Laura. He was friends with her older brother. And what's interesting is that very shortly after those two young girls were horribly murdered, he enlisted into the Marine Corps. So he skipped town, essentially. He withdrew yeah. himself from that community. And as the events unfold, um, is then in the barracks, four doors down from Amanda Snell, and then later on encounters those two young women survivors who are three miles away. So the 30,000-foot view shows that the common denominator for all of these tragic attacks and deaths is George Avila. Right, exactly. That that all of these things came together in June of 2010. It's He had been in Zion, Illinois, joined the Marine Corps, eventually ends up in Arlington, Virginia, where he's where he lived down the hall from Amanda Snell during the time of her murder. And um, so all of these come together in uh, roughly the summer of 2010. Another thing that's critically important that happened in the case in that same time period were, yeah, Torres was pending trial without bail. So, you know, not out there on the streets trial set for you know December of 2010 but law enforcement got word that he was trying to, through another inmate to have the witnesses meaning the victims in Arlington County 
killed so they couldn't testify against him at his upcoming trial. And they learned that through a, a person that was in jail, but had also been an informant with law enforcement and told them all about it. And Torres had even gone so far as to draw a map of where these young women lived. And the map was, was you know, quite accurate, showing, you know, a, a nearby uh, auto dealership had the street name right. The only thing he had wrong, he had he drew out the houses and had the house um, one house off of where they actually lived. But it was a pretty good map. But also, importantly, it shows that this is more than somebody just talking in jail. This is somebody that they knew had committed this horrific act or horrific acts and was trying to harm these victims again. So this raised not only alarm bells, but this made law enforcement extremely scared for these victims as well as anyone else. And that's important. You know, the actionable step is important as you're prosecuting inchoate crimes, which includes conspiracy. So essentially inchoate mean incomplete. Um, for listeners, it, there needs to there needs to be a, a step, a, essentially a material or meaningful step taken. So it's not enough to just talk about it because essentially w- when we factor in humanity, we're like, yeah, there's a lot of conversations about how well, I want this person dead or well, I, in, in that world, not normal people don't, but I want this person dead or I wish those girls could be killed. But then to your point, the painstaking way with which he drew a map to ensure that they were accurately identified um, accompanied by the other steps. I mean, it was clear that he had intention and a desire and wanted everything possible to occur so that these poor survivors were killed. So the informant that you're discussing, that's Osama El Atari. No, that was a there were that was there was two informants as sorry. Oh, there, was a different there was an initial informant that provided all this information. This informant was in jail and at some point um while he was in jail, he, this is, remember, we're back in a, a different era back then. He was deported by ICE. So mm-hmm. obviously that wouldn't have happened today, but he was deported by ICE. And he, uh, so law enforcement were really in a panic mode because they knew Torres was trying to kill these victims. They knew the person he was talking to got deported basically under their noses. And they didn't know who else Torres was talking to, what other steps he was taking, or anything else. So they, they lost their in to talk with him. So they then begin talking about, you know, trying to find out who else is talking to Torres. And that led them to, as you said, uh, Osama El Atari, who was at the time in jail, uh, a defendant I had prosecuted for bank fraud, in jail for stealing $53 million from uh, several banks uh, in in the DC area, as well as other places. And he was pending sentencing, uh, sitting in jail. And he was somebody that that not only knew Torres and talked to Torres, but he also knew everyone. And he also had an agreement within his plea agreement to cooperate with the government, which means to tell about other crimes he knows about, as well as the crime he's been involved in. So law enforcement approached Osama al-Atari about cooperating and also, and in the course of doing so, they asked him to wear, you know, what's you know known as a wire. It's not really a wire, but it was a recording device about the size of a cigarette lighter and to record conversations with Torres because their initial concern was trying to get more evidence that Torres is trying to harm these, uh, the victims. But more importantly, they wanted to know, is has Torres talked to somebody else? Because maybe there's already a plan in place to harm these 
victims or, or to reharm these victims. So they needed to find out exactly what's going on, what the danger is to these victims, and, and to, to eliminate that danger. So they approached Osama Alatari. He agreed to cooperate, and or he was part of his plea agreement, but he but he agreed to wear a wire and talk to Torres about that was their primary concern, but also other other things he had been involved in. We have a clip of one of their conversations, Jonathan. We'll play it now. Warning for listeners, the following content is graphic. What do you think you're getting the other way? You don't think so? I'll beat it. I know I'll beat it. You brought that guy up back this? It's been five years. It was not even a speck of dust against me. No, I'm saying, though, like, you know, remember how last night you said, I'll, I'll, what did you say to me last night? I forget. Almost a perfect crime. Yeah, but how, I don't understand how the f- caught you. DNA. Okay, it was my DNA and the one of the victims. So now they think that I did it. Yeah, I mean, they think, but they can't prove, right? That's what I'm saying. I got that case beat. It's a murder case. But if, even if your DNA is there, what does that mean? I was there. I had something to do with that victim. Yeah, but how old were you then? So what does that mean? Can you believe that I don't know what the f- going on? No, no, but basically, I mean, how, how did you how did you get that f- guy to confess? I did. You know, his f- no free will. What were you thinking? I told you he had mental problems. <laughs> From my crowd, like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Are you fing me? No. Dude, can, does he have a brother? Because can he fing do it to my. <laughs> can he fing confess to stealing my money? <laughs> man, dude, I saw. Dude, to be honest with you, man, George? What? Are you there? Yeah. To be fing 100% honest with you, man, you're the most brutal person I've ever met in my life. Dude, man. Like, way worse. I mean, why, okay, can I ask you a question? But I, can I ask you an honest question and don't get mad at me? If you don't want to answer, don't answer. I don't really give a f to me, honestly. Yeah. But why did you stab the dude in the eyes? <laughs> you know? Please. Isn't that overkill? <laughs> like I said, I was 16. Yeah, but, I mean, were you, were you worried that they were going to f see you? <laughs> They're dead. <laughs> Probably, I don't know. That's nauseating. It's nauseating to listen to. Um, you have to sort of give El Atari some credit, I guess, for being thorough with his questions. Um, and I hope acting, I hope that was acting in that moment of levity to try to get um, Avila Torres to be more forthcoming. I mean, what we were listening to was his callous disregard for the father of a murdered young girl, as he said, rotting in jail and posthumously or potentially posthumously stabbing her in the eyes. Um, So when this recording came to light, Jonathan, how did this affect everything? Well, this recording was one of a series. Basically, um, Elatari recorded every single thing he did in jail for about seven to nine days with a recording device that couldn't be altered or anything else. And he recorded a series of conversations with Torres because they were placed 
you know, they were in cells, adjoining cells to each other, and they were able to talk to each other through like an upper vent in the in the cells. But yeah, what a couple things that are just before I get to this really shows a lot about what Torres is in terms of the horrificness of the crimes, but also this pride in the fact that he thinks he can was too smart and could get away with things, talking about it being a perfect crime. And another thing that's interesting, which he changes later after Elatari kind of continues to talk to him and, and peel back layers of his story, because at this time he was referring to the Illinois girls. He, these are eight, nine-year-old girls, remember? He's referring to them as like two dudes mm -hmm. and how he's like fighting them off and killed them and stuff like that. But Elatari eventually, on, on subsequent recordings, gets him to admit not only their names, their ages, everything else about it. But this is when Torres was boasting about his crimes, mocking Jerry Hobbs, who who was, again, you said in jail, had been in jail for a long period of time at that point, for five years, and they're just yucking it up about it. And Elatari was doing this to, to play along because this was a way to get Torres talking to, to you know stroke his ego and stuff like that. But he also would assure you if he it was here, would assure you he was appalled by it too. Um, but how does this change things? Well, this, this as well as other recordings, broke open the case in Illinois, or certainly changed the focus to where it should have been, from you know Jerry Hobbs to, to George Torres. The other other recordings on this subsequently opened up the Amanda Snell case because he also made admissions to killing Amanda Snell at the Fort Myer barracks. And at that point, was that classification still undetermined? And at that point is when the pathologist could or the medical examiner could change it to homicide and then they could um, expedite the processing of the footprint found on the vinyl, the linoleum in her barracks floor, as well as the additional DNA at that scene or the additional evidence that then led them to prosecute for that. Is that accurate? It's fairly accurate. Um, the medical examiner never changed his opinion, believe it or not. He still had it undetermined, undetermined all the way through. But it did open up the case to re-examining or examining evidence that had been collected because of the detailed confessions he gave about the way he killed Amanda Snell. He, he talked about where he did it, which was on her bed, and what he used to kill or what else was there. So they re-examined evidence that they had collected before, analyzed the bedding, found areas of DNA um, on the bedding that matched, uh, was a complete match to George Torres. And so for listeners as well, you know, because you described the scene, remember, um, the bed was made, it was a, a tidy room barracks, and the reality was that... Um, Avila Torres had cleaned her room after. He made her bed. He vacuumed. He left the vacuum out. So uh, he actually enjoyed many hours there in the room where he was able to manufacture what successfully temporarily looked like an accident or an, a sort of odd scene rather than an obvious homicide, which is what it looked like after he murdered her. Exactly. He took he, he took a lot of, and, and on, on these tapes, he taught... He took a lot of pride in the way he got away with his crimes, and particularly in that case, how he cleaned the room, how he made the bed, so it didn't look like anything was suspicious. And really, if you go back to the Arlington County police officers, without them being alert and seeing what they saw and making note of it, 
this, you know, he probably, you know, may have still gotten away with that crime, but but he made a lot of effort, took a lot of pride, and, and certainly bragged about how he called you know his crime, you know, the the perfect crime and things like that because he thought he had outsmarted everyone with that crime. Right. With El Atari asking, you know, do you have any remorse for this? He says, does a lion feel remorse when it kills a hyena? So he really had an absolute lack of humanity, an absolute lack of empathy with all of these victims. And coupled with as well, you know, he sort of had a, had a there has a baby face. So this is not someone that is an imposing figure or or sort of makes someone is jarring physically. He's actually quite unassuming. And perhaps that, you know, who knows, but perhaps that's why it people didn't raise eyebrows more. Perhaps that's why he got away with things in the in the community and he was friends with the brother and they did question him as they identified everyone, but then he left, no problem. Again, that original officer, it was the swiveling being out in the snow, no one else was out, and the swiveling while driving, that's what caught his attention. Otherwise, he was a relatively unassuming figure, albeit a monster in human skin. So... Now we are at the triangulation of all of these cases, Jonathan. So walk us through the state and federal dispositions and how those played out. So Torres went to trial in Arlington, Virginia, for the state crimes for those uh, February 2010 attacks. He was convicted of multiple counts, I want to say over 10 counts related to that. He was sentenced to something like five life terms plus 168 years for for those crimes just alone. Um, so he was sentenced to those. He was then charged federally in the case I worked on in the Alexandria, Virginia, in the Eastern District of Virginia for the murder of Amanda Snell. Um, that, that occurred in the spring, the, the charges occurred in the spring of 2011. And this was a case that was eligible federally for the death penalty. And without getting too much into it, there, there's a pretty significant process at the Department of Justice as to whether or not to seek the death penalty. It has to be approved by the Attorney General of the United States, who at the time was Eric Holder. Uh, they look at the aggravating factors, the mitigating factors, and the decision was made by the Attorney General to seek the death penalty for uh, Torres, because really the heinousness of the crimes, the lack of remorse, the violence, the multiple crimes, there's so many factors that were just simply so aggravating and not, you know, as horrific as anything could be. So the decision was to seek the death penalty for him. And that's how we proceeded in our case after that decision was made. And it ultimately went to trial in April of 2014. And Torres, and the way the trial proceeded, it was there was a guilt phase. The jury had to determine whether or not he killed Amanda Snell. And then ultimately they had to decide based on the aggravating factors, the Arlington attacks, the Zion murders, and other factors, whether or not a death sentence or life imprisonment was the appropriate disposition for the case. And ultimately the jury, after hearing the evidence, came back with a sentence of death for the murder of Amanda Snell, as well as the other aggravating factors. Well-deserved. What's interesting about this case, and no shortage of George being 
um, an odd figure, is that he he wanted, he said he wanted the death penalty. In fact, for a time, he tried to represent himself and eventually succumbed to the judge saying, are you sure? Um, I think, by the way, that that was a, an excellent move because all it would have done is erode the sort of caliber of the case and render it open to appeal, um, which would have happened knee-jerk procedurally. And so it's my understanding that George didn't offer any mitigating factors, although the jury still found one. A few agreed that the mitigating factor of him being 16 when he murdered the um, nine and eight-year-olds in Illinois, that that was considered a mitigating factor. And for listeners, that's simply, that's a, you know, that's a proffered mitigating factor. So age can be a mitigating circumstance when presented. Yep, exactly right. You know, the jury is supposed to weigh the aggravating factors versus the mitigating factors. And, and that was the only one that they found. And none, none were presented to them as mitigating factors from the defense. And, you know, he was 16 at the time, but just, you know, he was almost, his birthday was August, so he was closer to 17 years old. But that was the only mitigating factor. And that was found by the jurors themselves that had that option. But even once they ultimately balanced all the aggravating factors versus the one mitigating factor that they they could come up with, they weren't. They didn't take very long to come back with a, a sentence of death for for Torres. Right, and I think that that reminds me the verdict of guilt in the first in the Virginia non eligible death penalty case. That was a four hour deliberation, if I remember correctly. So there was essentially zero doubt in anyone's minds that this monster had assaulted and kidnapped those two young girls, that he had murdered Amanda Snell, and then ultimately, um, as well, the murders of the two young girls in Zion. Exactly. When these, when these cases went to trial, both the one in Arlington and the federal case, the evidence was simply overwhelming. And the jury, you know, you, I know from your experience, you know how sometimes juries can be unpredictable. Sometimes you're not sure how long they will take to reach verdicts. But in this case, what what is interesting is both at the guilt phase and the penalty phase where they uh, found to impose the death penalty, they weren't out very long. But I think it's really a function of how strong the evidence was. And, you know, even though the trials were, were, were lengthy and there was a lot of evidence, the evidence was just so overwhelming. And, and you know, when when anyone looks at this case, even that are non-jurors, I don't I don't think there are too many people that would disagree with what this jury did as both the guilt phase or or the penalty phase. And from what I've seen, you know, generally speaking, even if the guilt is incontrovertible, then the sentencing and especially juries um, hesitation to impose the death penalty usually comes in because of mental state. There's usually some question as to whether the defendant had full faculties or was somehow impacted by something like a postpartum depression or a bipolar disorder or something like that, right? I've, I've seen them oftentimes, they tend to err on the side of generosity just to be sure, right? You're condemning another human to death. But here, what I, what I understand, what I've gleaned is, again, that callousness, that lack of remorse, the brutality of the crimes. He never expressed one iota of empathy or humanity. And so that, in part, in the second phase and levying the the sentencing, the jury was like, "Yeah, I, I, this this is a monster. This is a tried and true monster, and therefore he deserves capital punishment." 
In Illinois, was there a state trial ever? No, he ultimately uh, pleaded guilty to the offense in, offenses in Illinois uh, subsequent to the federal trial and was sentenced to, I believe, over 100 years in prison so to to be served on top of all of these other sentences and you know clearly you can't serve that many years but it's certainly a you know a, a safeguard if something were to happen on appeal or anything else with the other cases so he ultimately pleaded guilty to that offense and now he is um, on death row more of the fox true crime podcast coming up okay and this wasn't the end though of osama's participation he played a large role as well in the trial. Yeah, Osama was a critical witness at the trial because not only to to talk about the tapes that uh, you know to, to authenticate the tapes and, and give context to these recordings with Torres, but he also talked about an incident that he and Torres had before Osama cooperated, and it, this was important because part of the government's case, our our case, was Torres was preoccupied with learning to do sleeper holds. We had witnesses talk about how he liked to put chokeholds on people and was fascinated by ways to incapacitate people. And he was somewhat of an expert on that. So when Osama was testifying, he testified about a fight he had with Torres in the jail before he became a cooperator in which Torres tried to choke him and Osama ultimately got the best of him in the jailhouse fight. And what's interesting about this was during the trial, you know, Torres's defense attorney was going after our, our theory of how, you know, well, if he really knew how to do chokeholds, why wasn't he able to choke Osama Elatari? Therefore, this guy doesn't know how to choke people, doesn't know how to incapacitate them. So during the during the question, or during the question when the defense attorney was asking him, well, he he did he wasn't able to choke you, and Osama's uh, retort was, well, he didn't know how to choke a man. And that was sort of a, 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 a I don't know if it, it was a game-changing moment, but certainly a moment that really highlighted the horrificness of Torres's crime because his crimes were attacking children and, and sleeping women. And when he had to, when he had to confront a man, he didn't he didn't fare so well. It struck me about this case as well. You're right that there was sort of a a contrast in his effectiveness that when he preyed on little girls and a sleeping woman then he got the better of them. But when he encountered the two young women who, you know, fought back, um, who, who he gave up quickly after she appeared lifeless, et cetera, um, they, they testified how he, you know, fumbling around using the painter's tape, essentially like a, a juvenile approach to these horrific crimes, albeit with lifetime consequences for them as their, their victim impact statements represented that they were scarred for years and, um, you know, terrified for life, his, his, even though he was, um, preying on uh, people that were a lot less than him. And then he, you know, paled in comparison to the, when he, when he came against a man or whatever, it's still, um, like they still had severe consequences. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the effects of these crimes to these victims that, you know, thankfully they're alive, but the, the the effects will last for a lifetime. And this case really, you know, highlighted, you know, so many things. You see the worst, the absolute worst in humanity with George Torres, but you also see saw the courage of these victims 
the victim to, to, to survive, but also the victim to, to testify in court and also knowing at the time he was seeking to harm her again. And mm -hmm. you just see, you really see that, you know, so much about humanity within this case because you see the worst of the worst and you really see the best in people or the victims, the law enforcement. Mm -hmm. But you're right, these, these, they will suffer, you know, for the rest of their lives and hopefully it gets better over time and hopefully knowing that justice was done brings them some, you know, some solace. But, but certainly this is something that not only will never be forgotten, but never really can be gotten over. Mm. The final tragedy to me about this, Jonathan, the first time that I encountered this case and learned about the exoneration of James Hobbs, I was, you know, happy. And I thought, well, this is what a, what a good ending. You know, he was exonerated. But the additional tragedy is what happened to him after he was exonerated. And he um, was arrested multiple times for violent offenses as well as drug use and the like. And it seemed like a lot of lives were ruined um, mm -hmm. because of George Torres. Yeah, exactly. That that there's so many lives when you look at a crime victim you know, it, it's so much more than just the victim. I, and I hate saying the word, you know, saying just the victim, but everyone around the victim, they're, they're harmed, the community's harmed, and everyone else. And Jerry Hobbs was, you know, harmed probably irreparably by, by what happened to his daughter, what subsequently happened to him. And it's just, it's a tragedy. And in so many ways, it's a tragedy that, that continues for so many. And, and it, that's what's, the really, really sad thing about this crime and all crime, it doesn't just stop when the criminal is convicted. It doesn't just, it isn't just limited to the victim. All of us suffer when crimes occur in our communities. Jonathan, thank you for your service in prosecuting these crimes, in pursuing justice relentlessly, and especially for the large role that you played in this case in getting a monster off the streets and on death row. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Please rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts, and Amazon Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.